Welcome to the Semi-Interesting Podcast, where we explore some of the unique legal issues in the global semiconductor industry. My name is Nathaniel Lusak. I'm an IP attorney at the law firm of Hodgson Russ and one of your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Morris. I'm an IP attorney and director of intellectual property and products at Pure Storage in Mountain View, California, and I am one of your hosts. On today's episode of the Semi-Interesting Podcast, we're going to talk about trade secrets. We'll touch on briefly what they are, but our focus today is going to be a little bit more on how a company finds out if a trade secret was taken by an employee, and then all the other private details that can also come to light in that investigation. Trade secrets represent a huge percentage of the brain power in the semiconductor industry or any high-tech industry. Semiconductor companies have trade secret protection policies. They have means to investigate when something goes wrong. And to help us better understand how a trade secret theft investigation is run, we've asked two of my colleagues to join today, Melissa Subject and Laura Bechtel. Thank you both for being here. Laura, could you just start and say hello and give us a quick intro to yourself? Sure. Thanks, Nathaniel. I'm Laura Bechtel. I'm a partner in the Labor and Employment Group. And, you know, my focus is helping my clients who are mostly businesses of all sizes deal with their employees and their employment-related issues. And these trade secret disputes and and protections generally, you know, proactive measures to protect trade secrets are, are top of mind. And I've been doing this type of work for 20 years. And I've seen a lot of situations where, um, an employee's idea of a trade secret and who owns it is um, at odds with their employers. And and what happens next can get um, fairly messy. So that's what we're here to talk to you all about. Thanks. And Melissa? Sure. Thank you, Nathaniel. Um, I am a partner at Hodgson Russ's business litigation practice area. My focus is on intellectual property litigation, meaning patent infringement matters, uh, trademark infringement matters, trade secret misappropriation, of course, what we're talking about today, copyright, uh, also non-competes, theft of confidential information. Uh, I represent both plaintiffs and defendants with all aspects of their intellectual property disputes. Well, Melissa, really uh, glad to have you again, and you too, Laura. Um, I know I met Melissa years ago when she uh, came and had uh, lunch with with me and with Nathaniel when we were, I think, talking about more um, patent law. But um, for me, trade secrets are really just much more juicy than patents because, you know, I think this the stereotypical story I used to uh, hear in private practice was, you know, it is often um, somebody founded a company and then the company gets acquired and then the founder gets annoyed with what's happening with the acquisition and they go out and they do it again and they've taken trade secrets with them and um, and it's very personal and frustrating um, for everyone involved. So, um, But can you, uh, from a kind of legal perspective, give our listeners a uh, brief description of what is a trade secret and how is it different than other areas of intellectual property law? Sure. And I can start with that one, Laura. Um, when we talk about trade secrets, generally what we're talking about is information that has economic value by virtually of it being secret, meaning not generally known uh, to the public. So what we're talking about here are an individual's or a company's most valuable assets. It could be manufacturing processes. It could be formulas, patterns, compilations, devices, methods, or even something uh, like a customer list can be considered a company's trade secret. That was a helpful definition from Melissa, and thank you for that. Um, 
But I'd like to point out to our listeners as well that the the protection that companies can have with respect to their intellectual property can be broader than the than the official sort of technical definition of trade secrets because the employees may have signed, for example, non-disclosure agreements or confidentiality agreements that might take a somewhat broader stance on what is protected and those may be enforceable to some extent. And likewise, employees have other obligations um, arising under statute or common law, like the duty of loyalty to their employers, not to um, misappropriate the company's information and use it to the to the company's detriment, even after their employment ends. All true. Thanks for setting the stage in terms of what the trade secret is. Now it's my turn to sort of set the stage on the industry. So the semiconductor industry is huge by revenue, by workforce, by the number of devices that include components uh, manufactured by the semiconductor industry. But one of the interesting parts about it is just how few major players there are. And that exists at all levels. I mean, it's true for device manufacturers. It's true for equipment manufacturers, chemical suppliers, really anyone uh, in the industry. And just from my own personal background, when I was working in the ion implant space, there's only a handful of companies in the entire world that make ion implanters. And I knew people that worked at three of those companies, all of whom were cutthroat competitors. So they had the triple crown aspect of it, but there, there was always that question of how much information did they carry over from their last job? Uh, and there's ways that companies put policies in place to protect themselves in that situation. But before we get into policies or investigations, here's a softball question. We talked about what a trade secret is, but why is it critical? I mean, why are there these policies? What, what's the harm? If all we're talking about is a customer list, what's the value behind that? I think it goes back to Melissa's definition, which was it's information from which the company derives its eco derives economic value. And I think in high tech industries, the IP is everything. It's the heart of the of the economic engine and, and the, the profit center for the business. And if they are unable to exploit that for their sole use, you know, the business fundamentally would be undermined. That's right, Laura. As I mentioned earlier, trade secrets are a company's most valuable assets, and they are crucial to growing your business, to your company's survival. And once that information is out in the public, once it's no longer secret, that means that your competitors can take that information and use it to their advantage to compete against you. So these trade secrets that we're talking about today they're allowing your company to survive, to be profitable, and to grow. I think IP is really important to the semiconductor industry companies and really to all companies, um, and specifically trade secrets. I know that you know IP for patents, for instance, you protect by getting a patent. But what are really the right ways to go about protecting your trade secrets inside your company? I think the biggest thing to keep in mind in terms of protecting your confidential information and trade secrets is that you want to limit disclosure on a need-to-know basis. And there's a number of different ways to do that. And the first one Laura mentioned earlier on in this podcast, which is having a proper NDA in place, meaning have your employees, have your visitors, have your 
partners, your potential partners, sign non-disclosure agreements. That's first and foremost. Restricting access, and that may be restricting access to data. It may be restricting access to your office space, to your plants, so that only certain visitors, um, certain potential partners can see your manufacturing process. In terms of your data, your computers, your iPhones, iPads, you want to make sure that you have your data password protected. And also that only uh, individuals who have a need to know can access that information. Monitoring. Monitoring is important in terms of making sure that the protocol that you have in place is working and that it is targeting the correct individuals and it's prohibiting access to the correct individuals. Um, Another good way to protect the data Uh, and your trade secrets is in addition to having NDAs, so specific agreements between the company and its employees, contractors, visitors, vendors, et cetera, would be to have policies in place that employees are given copies of, made to, you know, sign an acknowledgement of receipt of and understand that they must abide by as a condition of their employment. And that would include policies governing access to information, maintaining the confidentiality of confidential information, proper handling of sensitive information. And also, you know, along those lines, either in the agreement or, you know, and or in the in the handbook, making sure it's clear to all employees that work product that they develop is part of their job, whether they do it at, in their home office or they do it at work, if it's related to their job, it's the company's going to own that. And it's not theirs to, to store or save or add to their portfolio or send to their friends. Uh, and so just Increasing awareness of employees of the rules and then having contractual, having those employees signed off on contractual obligations is a good way to to protect your trade secrets at the front end. So then how do you handle it? You know, if you have all these things in place and everyone's signed the right thing and they've been trained and they should know, but they're just bad people, right? They just take it. You know, maybe, you know, they email it to themselves or maybe they can't because there's some restrictions on what what goes out or putting it on a thumb drive or something. But, you know, what are really the ways that companies tend to figure out that trade secret has occurred? Well, if they haven't discovered it through their regular monitoring, oftentimes the way they discover it is really when they get alarmed at the behavior of a competitor or they're monitoring the former of former employees' activity in the marketplace and see on LinkedIn the position they've taken with the competitor and that it's a substantially similar position. Or uh, they hear from customers that um, this, um, this, hey, Joe, who used to work for you, is now working for so-and-so down the street. And I just talked to him today about this, you know, particular project. So that that tends to be how I how what I get involved is when a client has stumbled upon it this way. Melissa might see it uh, in, in other ways from the litigation standpoint as well. No, that's right, Laura. That's exactly how I stumble upon it or my clients do. And I think that there are certain situations that warrant uh, heightened awareness. And it all comes back to that monitoring function that Laura mentioned and I mentioned earlier on. But in terms of the marketplace, if you have a competitor who suddenly comes out with a very similar product or a very similar process or device 
Um, and you know how long it took for your company to come up with that product, that device. And they came out with a product in a very short period of time. And you know that you have a few former employees that were poached by that competitor. You might start putting the pieces together that something just doesn't seem right here. And you're going to want to do a little bit more investigation. So it's monitoring the marketplace, monitoring the products that are out there. Also monitoring your former employees. If you have a number of employees leave and they all target the same competitor, they all end up at the same competitor, there might be something there that you want to take a look at over the course of the next week, months, maybe even years to see what products they're bringing out on the market. Another way that you can go about doing a little bit of investigatory work if you're suspicious is there's software out there where essentially your fingerprints are on all your data points, right? So if you're creating documents, if you're opening documents, viewing documents, transferring documents, there's software that is going to track who, what, where, when, and why as to why you know, you're looking at that information. So if you see that you have an employee who resigned six months ago that at midnight took a bunch of documents off the system and emailed them to their AOL or Gmail account, that's probably something that is suspicious to you and you're probably going to call your lawyer. But again, it all comes back to monitoring. But if you have a group of employees that leave, you have key executives that leave, you have an important researcher who left and they're at competitors, something to take a look at and monitor over the course of you know the next several weeks, months, even years. And, you know, in some in some highly competitive and technical industries, there may, you know, businesses like the semiconductor business, it may make sense for a company to have certain classifications of employees that regardless of who the incumbent is, when somebody in that classification leaves a, a review, a forensic review of their data activity for the last six months is undertaken to see whether they were emailing them, themselves data, downloading things, um, if any other sort of suspicious activity occurred that would suggest that they may have absconded with some information that the company doesn't believe they should have. And then also maintaining a forensic copy of their devices until the former employer is sure that the coast is clear and they're not going to wind up litigating against that person. So, you know, it may just be that as a matter of routine, whenever somebody who's, you know, a high level salesperson leaves or a high level developer leaves or, you know, the um, person that's coming up with the invention that the company hinges on, even if they're, you're on great terms with them and you think they're just leaving to go travel the world, you still take a deep dive into what they were doing the last six months or a year before they left when they knew they were going to leave. That's a great point, Laura. When, um, when you have any employees leave, and like Laura said, whether it's an inventor, whether it's an executive, you want to conduct that exit interview. You want to have a checklist in front of you. You want to ask them questions, get as much information as you can, but certainly ask the questions of, did you turn in all your devices? Uh, did you take any information with you? Did you email yourself any information? And this is helpful both for your investigation, for your analysis, your monitoring, but also down the road in the unfortunate event that uh, you come across a litigator like me and you have to prosecute this trade secret matter, it's helpful for me to see that you took all the steps that you could to prevent the trade secret misappropriation uh, from happening. And that actually leads us to sort of the next topic, which is what happens after you've done the investigation. So let's say we have a hypothetical R&D scientist during the check of their activities in the last few weeks, 
prior to their departure to go to a competitor. You note that they downloaded flash drives or you know whatever worth of material. They take it with them. What do you do next? I mean, you have a log of what websites they visited. You have a log of what files they copied. You might have an image of their laptop, which you took before it was recirculated back into the general laptop population. But Melissa, what what steps do you immediately take from a legal standpoint against that former employee? Well, as a litigator, the first question that I'm going to ask, what information do you have? What evidence do you have of this misappropriation? And certainly I need to know what confidential information we're talking about. What trade secrets are we talking about? Are there patents that are covering you know, this invention? Uh, do you have trademarks? Do you have copyrights? So I need to know what type of intellectual property we're talking about first. Um, but to the extent that there is a, an indication that confidential information you know, was taken, we're going to want to do a deep dive. Um, we're going to want to get an expert to conduct a forensic analysis, which essentially is going to be, let's look at this, let's say it's a former employee. Let's look at this former employee's computer and let's see exactly what they did in the days, weeks, months leading up to their departure. Did they delete files? Did they transfer files? Did they transfer their entire computer onto a flash drive and they can just plug it into their laptop at home and all of a sudden they're set up for you know a competing entity? Um, so we're going to take a look at that. We might start interviewing other employees. Uh, what did they know? What did they hear? We're going to start looking at the key documents. I'm going to look at those non-disclosure agreements that we talked about. I'm going to look at your employee handbook. I'm going to look at your policies. And essentially what we're doing is we're looking at all the background facts and we're building up a case because what we want to do is we want to ask the court for essentially uh, an emergency order that's going to prevent that competitor, that former employee from using your very valuable uh, intellectual property, confidential information, trade secrets. Generally, what you're looking at here is a request for what's called a TRO, a temporary restraining order, and a preliminary injunction. And that's basically asking the court for immediate relief that will prevent that person, that entity from utilizing information that they shouldn't have their hands on, that they improperly obtained. So we need to make sure that we get enough facts to prove to the court that we're likely to succeed in our underlying lawsuit, that we're likely to establish that there was this improper taking, this improper use. In court, you should issue an order now restraining them from using it. So when you're getting this restraining order so that you can then do some more discovery, what are the places that you're looking at to find things, you know, to discover things. I assume that you're going to look a lot at people's email and whether they emailed anything out. Maybe I think you said earlier, you know, you're going to have their laptop or at least an image of their laptop before it got repopulated into the employee population. What are other things besides those that are subject to discovery and um, usually lead to useful results? Uh, that's exactly right. So you're looking at um, their computer, you're looking at their files, their electronic files, their hard copy files. We're going to be looking at agreements. We're going to be looking at documents. We're going to be looking at maybe project files, maybe software code. We're going to be looking at text messages, chat messages to the extent that there are some. Uh, certainly emails, that is a, you know, a large portion of the documentation that you know, we're going to be reviewing. Communications among colleagues um, back and forth with uh, customers. Are they stealing your customers? Potential vendors. Uh, we're going to be looking at all of that information. Laura, do you have anything to add? 
Yeah, I, I was just going to emphasize, you know, the sort of internal communications with and about um, the employee and, and the external communications as well. But also, you know, the fact that text messages on company systems or devices, instant messages, those are all totally fair game. And once discovery commences, it, you know, might broaden to cover personal devices as well, which somehow continues to be a shock to people that just because they switch their nefarious activity to their personal device doesn't mean it's off limits now. So that's where we often find the smoking guns, right? Is in the text messages or the WhatsApp messages or the signal messages that people somehow think that they're, they've uh, somehow outsmarted the, the discovery process and it won't come to light, but it does. Yeah, and that forensic analysis that we generally perform, we like to perform, um, one smoking gun that we often see is the deleted files, is the wiped system, but nothing's ever actually wiped. I mean, even just evidence that the system itself was wiped or the data was deleted, uh, that there shows the nefarious activity that Laura was mentioning. Oh, I have a funny little anecdote there. Um, this is like a friend of a friend story, but um, somebody was working sort of in forensics and, um, and my uh, brother-in-law said, you know, so what's the best way that you have found to get um, information? And um, he said, oh, we send a company-wide email that says we're going to be monitoring everybody's systems starting in a week. And then we just see what everyone deleted between when we send that email and a week later. And the best <laughs> stuff is always right idea. there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a yeah. genius way to monitor your employees' activities. They just put it right there in this nice little deleted folder for you. <laughs> All their nefarious stuff. Sorry, I think Nathaniel was going to actually ask the next question. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but they, it gets to the point of there is nefarious stuff. And hey, Laura, you mentioned that people are surprised that you actually would go look into their personal devices as well or their personal email because they figured that you wouldn't be smart enough to know that they had one of those. I mean, that gets sort of to the life lesson aspect of this. Not only could you get in a lot of trouble for stealing trade secrets, but you're going to have forensic IT people and your attorneys and other attorneys looking at a whole bunch of stuff that's in your inbox or in your text messages. And that would shed light on things that maybe you didn't expect would be released into the into the wide world. So, I mean, what are the kinds of information would come out in one of these investigations? Well, all sorts of information comes out. Not all of it's relevant to the lawsuit, and so it doesn't all get admitted into evidence in the lawsuit, but it can create some very uncomfortable situations for the person whose whose information previously secret information is now in the hands of the IT experts, their counsel and opposing counsel. Um, and typically that's things like extramarital affairs, um, in, you know, relationships among colleagues that may be um, beyond the scope of a professional relationship, certain, you know, proclivities for certain types of online entertainment that people prefer to keep secret most of the time. And then, um, you know, I've also had personal experience of that we were taking action against former employees who were who were competing unfairly. And they were operating under the impression that if they were texting each other, nobody would ever see it. But we subsequently saw the texts and the text chain included 
a whole a group of messages about how they were providing us with a dummy laptop for forensic imaging and they weren't going to provide their real laptops um and oh weren't they funny and they had really they had really outsmarted everybody <laughs> so we were able to get some pretty significant relief and sanctions as a result of uh that smoking gun so that's like the most sort of obvious blunder that I, that i've had but the affairs usually the discovery of affairs usually causes causes the most um acute discomfort for people. Melissa, I think, ha probably has some good war stories like that, too. And that's right. Um, at the top of my list, answer um, Nathaniel's question would certainly be the the office romance. Now, you know, I, I will point out that while counsel may see that in the forensic analysts will see that um, if you have careful counsel, it's unlikely that ultimately sees the light of day in, in the litigation. There are things that could be considered related to the litigation or responsive to the litigation that could be problematic for an individual uh, down the road. And that is chatter about your boss, chatter about your colleagues, inappropriate comments about clients, what you really think of that project like I said, what you really think of your boss. And unfortunately, oftentimes these types of comments are connected to information that is actually related to the litigation. So that puts your counsel in a difficult position where they have to hand over that email, that document with that potentially embarrassing and problematic language from you. And your boss might actually end up seeing that. Maybe even your customers or maybe even your colleagues are going to see that. So I always try to counsel my colleagues, uh, my clients, that you should draft an email as if the world is going to see it. And that goes for IMs and jabber messages, too, which some people use as sort of like a way to memorialize just their stream of consciousness. And that sometimes that doesn't work out very well if it becomes subject to discovery and litigation. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. People use these um, like Slack or, or these other um, tools as a way to sort of replace, I think, especially in, you know, post-COVID world to replace the water cooler type conversations, right? But they aren't uh, the same, right? You know, the, the kinds of things that you might just say out loud and then totally disappear and nobody remembers are different when they're uh, written in a, in a Zoom chat. I can absolutely imagine that's <laughs> a problem. Um, I was thinking um particular uh, anecdote that I, that I had heard was actually of someone who was using his computer improperly for for porn. And that was found at work. And because then the company opened an investigation to that misuse, it led to finding actual trade secret misuse. Have um, you guys ever experienced that sort of backdoor way rather than the the dirty laundry coming out during litigation the dirty laundry leading to litigation i don't think i personally have but i can completely see how that would happen or i yeah. could see how you know like a sexual harassment investigation might result in combing through um someone's emails or calendar appointments and hitting on something that would reveal misappropriation of company information or sloppy practices with company information or or trade secrets. And so I think um, that's a very plausible scenario. Yeah, and I think just as plausible is during that investigation, um, you know, your, um, your boss is going to get a really good view of what it is that you're doing throughout the day and what your activities are. 
So when you, you may have been the star performer and now your boss might see what you're actually doing all day long or what you think about them, like I said earlier. But it could also turn up nefarious activity by others that weren't involved in the initial investigation. Um, and again, whether that might be your competitors, your colleagues, or your clients, there may be some other individuals or entities that are involved, and the scope is much broader than you thought it would be. One thing I've noticed, too, is since COVID, is with the rise of Zoom meetings, some companies have a tendency to just sort of automatically record every every meeting. And I, you know, I just think people might want to spend some time like being a little bit more um, discriminating about what actually should be recorded because these are then creating like permanent records or semi-permanent records of, of that discussion that can then be subject to discovery in a lawsuit. And particularly if you're talking about a competitor or you're talking about you know, what your strategy is going to be to solicit their employees, let's say, or, you know, or you're just talking about the deep trade secrets of the business, you can lose control of a recording and it can get forwarded and forwarded and forwarded very easily. So I, that would be something I just want to caution people about because I've been seeing that more and more. And to wrap up sort of the life lesson aspect of this, I mean, I, I wanted to echo something that Elizabeth mentioned, that having done some of these investigations, as we mentioned at the beginning, your employer is monitoring what files you're accessing, saving, moving around on the system, but they also monitor which websites you're on. And I know it didn't necessarily shock the forensic IT guy that I worked with, but it never ceased to surprise me at the amount of adult entertainment viewed as soon as the work laptop was not connected to the network whenever I had to do one of these. So, um, yeah, that if you don't want your personal preferences in terms of that to be viewed by your work colleagues, uh, perhaps don't use your work laptop to do it. And I think all of this circles back to a point that Laura raised earlier on uh, in this podcast, which is education, is really educating your employees on what is confidential information Um the protections that are in place, the monitoring that is in place, uh, what is accessible. I think, you know, it, it's important that your employees know what it is that is expected of them. And that's those policies, those procedures that are put into place uh, that Laura mentioned earlier on. And I, met, I view it as just fair warning for employees that they, you know, they should know that every single email and message that they send or receive is subject to to review, to being disclosed in a litigation potentially. They might someday be deposed about it. You know, three years later, sitting there in a conference room, looking at an email printed out and being questioned about it, you know, an, e an email from three years ago where you made a bad joke is very uncomfortable. And it just, you know, it's something that nothing quite teaches quite as well as experience um, for those situations. But I think employers are entitled to know that that's something that could very well happen and that even their most casual emails really are business records that are that are fair game. And on that note, as another takeaway from today's podcast of everything is going to be archived and memorialized forever in the internet age. Uh, so be careful what you're saving, what you're saying, what you're doing. Thank you to Laura and Melissa for joining us today. 
and sharing their thoughts on trade secrets and uh, offering a a warning about what happens in the event that you're caught up in one of these kinds of investigations. Hopefully we can have you back on a future episode to uh, to explore some other aspects of trade secrets. Yeah, that's great to have you here. Just uh, such interesting stories. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you all. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Semi-Interesting Podcast. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. And if you enjoyed the episode, we always appreciate five-star reviews. While we talked about legal issues, none of the information shared during this podcast is intended to be legal advice. If you have any questions about information we cover or ideas for a future episode, feel free to contact me or the other attorneys at Hodgson Russ. You can find contact information at www.hodgsonruss.com.